0: Second uh, Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verse 14 is where we're going to be at today. We're going to be looking to the scriptures. And the need of the hour today is not for a word from Kevin, but a word from God. And so we're going to be looking to see what God has to say. You know, this week, um, as the, rise, the, the number of uh, cases rise with the COVID-19, uh, in our st- state of Texas, our governor has said that uh, masks are now to be mandatory when social distancing is not possible. And I know that in the land of the of the free and the home of the brave, that that, that mandate has been met with uh, 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 equal and o- extreme opposition on both sides, right? And so uh, this week as I was uh, studying for this morning, uh, I came across a thought, I wish I, I, wish I could claim credit for it, I, can't, I don't even know who said it, but I just came across this thought and, and I, I want to share it with you and the thought is this, is that uh, the key to survival is revival, The key to survival is revival. And so much more than masks, much more than social distancing, much more than the things that come from science and vaccinations, we need a revival. We need God to do a work among us and in us and in our land. I want to end as, I want to, Lord willing, that this will be the last of this short series on revival. I want to end where I began, and that is with a quote by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the English expository preacher from last century from London. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, I am profoundly convinced that the greatest need in the world today is revival in the church of God. I am profoundly convinced that the greatest need in the world today is the revival of the church. Now, it was uh, almost 70 years ago since Martin Lloyd-Jones um, uttered these words, and I still believe that they're true, that the greatest need for today is in the world today is a revived church. Andrew Murray, the Scottish preacher from South Africa a hundred years ago or so, wrote in his book on revival. And he said that the church has been entrusted with the charge of the world. The church has been entrusted with the charge of the world. And he went on to write these words. He says that when Christ uh, ascended back into heaven to complete his his priestly work in heaven, he he spoke of two things that would be necessary for the continuation of his work here on earth. And the first was the coming of the Holy Spirit who would give to the church his power and would bring about conviction to the world of their need for a savior. And, and that happened at Pentecost. And then the second thing that he spoke about regarding the continuation of his work on this earth is that he would, just as the father had sent him into the world, he was now sending his church, his disciples into the world. Right? And so the church has been charged, has been entrusted with the charge of the world as we think of what's going on in our country today, these words that Lloyd-Jones spoke 70-some years ago about the greatest thing in the world today is for a revived church never ring more true than they do today. What ails our world and what troubles our nation, the answer to those ailments and troubles will not be found in the science lab, will not be found in the schoolroom, room, will not be found in a sociologist's office or in the Wall Street office. The answer to the ailments and the troubles of this world will be found in God and God alone. And as I was preparing for this week, I was reminded of what President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson said 100 years ago. He said this, he said, There are a good many problems before the American people today and before me as president, but I expect, listen to this, Wouldn't this be refreshing if we'd hear this from our politicians today, right? But I expect to find the solution of those problems just in the proportion that I am faithful in the study of the Word of God. Amen? I mean, here's a president saying, listen, there are troubles in front of us as a nation. There are troubles that are bearing down upon me as a president. But the answer is not going to be found in me or my cabinet or the resources. They're going to be found in God and God alone. That's where the answer is going to be found and as I began to think about that, I began to think about the passage that we want to look at this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. In 2 Chronicles, uh, the book opens with uh, Saul, not Saul, Solomon as the king of Israel. Solomon is the king of Israel. And his father, David, had made all the preparations, had secured all the, the materials needed, laid out the plans for the temple, and the first order of business for Saul, Solomon as king was to construct and to build the temple of God. And he built that temple. And in chapter 6, we read of that dedication prayer where Solomon dedicated this temple to the Lord. And in chapter 7, the Lord responded to Solomon's dedication prayer. And in verse 14, we read these words that many of us have memorized. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and Turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now this, this verse has been, the template has been the pattern that we've been looking at in the month of June concerning revival. We've looked at those four conditions that, that God has said to us in regarding revival he said if my people the, these are the people of God the people who have been called by my name those who have been called by God those who are identified as the people of God in this world if we the people of God will do four things and we've seen those and we've looked at those over the past several weeks if they will if we will humble ourselves literally if we will bend our knee before God Almighty Over the past five, six weeks or so, as we've watched the protests in our streets and the civil unrest spread from city to city across our country, we have watched government officials law enforcement leaders bow their knee before the protesters. And I just want to say to you this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ that we are never to bow before lawlessness, but we must always bow before the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so the Bible says that we must, if we're going to see revival, revival starts with us bowing our knee before God, humbling ourselves before Him, and pray. And we, we looked at that prayer in Psalm 85 where the exiles prayed when they came back to, to uh, Jerusalem, revive us again that we might rejoice in you and how that must be the prayer of the church today. It must be the prayer of our lives today. Revive us again, O oh Lord, that we, your people, might rejoice in you. And then we saw the third condition for revival. And seek your face. When we consider King Asa in 2 Chronicles 14 through 16 and how Asa sought the Lord. And even though for 35 years he sought the Lord, his life did not end well. Instead, his life ended in distress distress. Because even at the end, he failed to sought, seek the Lord. And we're reminded that, that we must always seek the Lord. We can never just take seeking the Lord for granted or, or, or just make, make an exception. Whenever we fail to seek the Lord, there is distress. And last Sunday we saw and we heard from the prophet Joel who called us to repent or to turn from our wicked ways. He said, what is the promise of revival? What if we as the people of God humble ourselves and bend our knee before God and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. What will happen? Verse 14 tells us what will happen. That God will do three things. And here we have the promise of revival. We say, what is the promise of revival? Number one, the first promise of revival is God's favor. God's favor. Uh, God says, I will hear from heaven. I will hear from heaven. Now think about those words. I cannot imagine a more ominous threat than that of having a closed heaven. A heaven where God is walled off and the the gates of heaven are sealed closed shut. Can you imagine life without a God who hears from heaven? And here God says that if we as people will humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and Turn from our wicked ways. We have the assurance that God says that he will hear from heaven. I've shared with you before that to me, in my mind, one of the most chilling verses in all of Scripture is Ephesians 2, verse 12, where where Paul writes to believers, but he says at one time you too were alienated from Christ. You were in this world without God and without hope. Can you imagine life without God, without hope? And yet this is the reality of what happens when we forsake God and we forget Him. We have no audience in heaven. We have no ear before God. This is exactly what the prophet Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah the prophet said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or His ear dull, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities... made a separation between you and your god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear it's not that uh, god's arm has suddenly become too short that god has become become weak and omnipotent that god has suddenly met a challenge in the 21st century that he's not up to meeting isaiah says that's not the problem the problem is not with god the problem is with us our iniquities have separated us from god our sins have caused god to to be unable to hear our cries. I'm reminded, I was reminded this week of what Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of Billy Graham, said in the wake of this, the, att- the terrorist attacks on America on September the 11th. On September the 13th of 2001, she was asked, why did God, why, uh, how could God let something like this happen? And listen to her, res- her response. Simple, but direct, and I believe true words. Her words. I believe God is deeply saddened by this just as we are, but for years we've been telling God to get out of our schools, to get out of our government, to get out of our lives. And being the gentleman that he is, I believe he has calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give us his blessing and his protection if we demand he leave us alone? But here, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we have the promise of God That if we humble ourselves, and if we pray, and if we seek his face, and if we turn from our wicked ways, he will hear from heaven. But this isn't just a one and done promise. No, this is the heart of God. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 12. Oh, we know 29 verse 11, right? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans not for calamity, not to harm you, but plans to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12. Then... You will call upon me and come and pray to me. And what does it say? And I will what? Hear you. I will hear you. This this was the word that was given by God through Jeremiah. A letter was sent from Jerusalem to Babylon and said, listen, yes, you're in a foreign country. Yes, you're in exile. But know this, that even in your exile, if you turn to God and call upon him, he will hear you. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24. Before they call, I will, what does it say? Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. Oh, here we have the nearness of God. In Psalm chapter 91, verse 15, the psalmist writes, he says, When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him. When? In trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And this psalm, Psalm ninety-one, is a psalm that would be worth reading. Say, who is this one that when calls to God, the one who takes refuge in God, the one who makes God his shelter, the one who takes delight in His steadfast love? This is the one who, when he calls upon God, God will answer him. He will be with him in trouble. He will rescue him. I was just kind of meditating upon these verses this week, and I was just thinking uh, about this Uh, two different times I was reading different things, uh, not related to the sermon this week, but two different times, two different occasions this week, reading two different sources. The authors referenced Daniel chapter 3 with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that story? And uh, Nebuchadnezzar built that, that statue in the plain and said, when the horn is sounded, you bow before that statue. And, and everyone bowed except these three Hebrew boys. And The king was outraged. He brought him in and said, why aren't you bowing down? They said, we can't bow down to you because there's only one God and only one God we're going to bow down to. Well, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, oh, king, listen to us. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow down to your image. The King was outraged. He heats the fire up seven times hotter. Throws them in. And he looks, expecting these three guys to be incinerated. And he sees not three, but four in the fire, I will rescue him, the one who calls on me. I think of the disciples with Jesus and disciples after a long day of ministry, Jesus sends them into the boat and says, you cross the lake, I'll meet you in the morning. And Jesus goes to the top of the mountain to pray and he looks down. And he sees that storm, and the Bible says that the, the, uh, the disciples were straining at the oars because the winds, plural, were against them. You ever feel like that? That the winds, plural, are against you? And what does Jesus do? He comes down the mountain, and he comes to the disciples walking on the water, right? And he gets into the boat, and he calms the storm. Doesn't take them out of the storm, but he brings calm into the midst of the chaos and the storms and the trials and the tests and the chaos of life. God's favor. If we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, what's the second promise? Number two, the second promise of revival is this not only is God's favor, but God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. Look what, what, the, what the scriptures say. The, the scripture says that uh, not only will I uh, hear them from heaven, but I will forgive their sin. Now, let's be honest. We've been in church a lot of years, many of us, right? We say you know, things like this in relationships. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? F- you know, we're you know, when you're around someone too much. You, you just, you don't, you don't appreciate them. You don't respect them. You, you lose interest in them. Familiarity breeds contempt. And I wonder if familiarity with God's forgiveness has begun to cause us to be dull to our need for forgiveness and the severity of our sin against God a writer one writer rather described sin this way sin is a soul destroying disease draining us of spiritual vitality and appetite and joy he goes on to say this, original sin, the sin that we received at the moment of conception. Original sin is, is like a congenital birth defect and acquired sin. Sins of our choice, our choosing, are like self-inflicted wounds. Isn't that a powerful, I think I found that as a powerful description of sin. Sin is a self, or soul-destroying disease draining us of vitality and appetite and joy. Think about uh, 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 when you're sick, right? There's no strength, there's no vitality, there's no appetite, lethargic, you're you're weak, there's no joy, there's no desire to get out of bed in the morning. And he says sin is just like that. Sin eats away at us. And yet the promise of revival is that when we turn from our sin and humble ourselves and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways and bend our knee that God not only uh, forgives our sin and does not hold what we have done against him, against us, but instead God revives us with strength, vitality, with an appetite, a hunger for God and the things of God and a joy, a delight and a desire in God. Right? Oh, how we need to be reminded of this and how we need to think about this. If my people... Who are called by my name will bend their knee and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will forgive their sin instead how many of us instead of mourning our sin we continue to delight in sin and how many of us here this morning or maybe watching online, instead of forsaking our sin, we cherish our sin. And knowing that our sin is not pleasing to God, we find pleasure in our sin. And see, there can be no revival until we deal with the issue of sin, the soul-destroying disease, soul disease that is running through our lives you say, why, would, why do we need forgiveness? Why is forgiveness in such a desperation? Why is forgiveness of sin uh, connected to revival? Well, I think of what, da- what David said after he confessed his sin to the Lord, his sin with Bathsheba to the Lord. He said in, in, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. See, with forgiveness we, we know the joy, the joy that is found in God. I think of the revival that, that we have in Scripture in Nehemiah chapter 8 when, when, uh, under Nehemiah and Ezra when the exiles returned back home and, and, uh, and they had been back into Israel some 70 years or so from after the exile. They had already had returned into a state of lethargy and, and despondency and their When the word of God was read, there was this grieving for their sin. For they recognized how great they had sinned against God. And they confessed their sin. And what did Ezra the priest say? Nehemiah chapter 8. He says, this is not a day for grieving. This is a day for rejoicing. Why? Because they had returned to the Lord. And God had forgiven their sin. And what did Nehemiah say? Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my... Do we need to sing the song? Strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength, right? Um, I think of when we begin to understand and receive God's forgiveness for sin, we find that there is blessing and vitality and strength. In Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, uh, the psalmist said this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. Have you, have you ever known that? Have you, have you ever experienced that where, where you have tried to cover up your sin? You try to hold on to it. And think, well, I'll just try to work this out. I'll try to do some penance. I'll, I'll punish myself enough for the things that I've done. And eventually, maybe I'll feel forgiven. And, and, Dave, and David says, no, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the summertime. We, we know what that is right now, right, in Texas? You go outside, and he's like, ah, oh, it's too hot to do anything out here. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what? And you forgave all my iniquity when we experience the forgiveness of god and we realize that god has forgiven us we've turned from our sin and we receive the forgiveness of god what happens we find that strength and vitality that appetite the joy that only god can give us the apostle john tells us in the new testament that forgiveness um, gives to us both the assurance in prayer and confidence in life uh, In 1 John chapter 3, we read, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. There's joy, there's assurance, there's confidence that we have. This is all, These are all pictures of the revived life. And so we have... The promises of revival, God says, you're going to have my favor, I'm going to hear from heaven. You're going to know my forgiveness, I will forgive you of all your sin. And finally, the third promise of revival is this, is God's fruitfulness. God's fruitfulness, God says, I will heal their land. How our land, how our nation needs to be healed. We're being torn apart. We're being torn apart, torn apart politically, we're being torn apart racially, we're being torn apart... um, uh socioeconomically we're, we're just being divided we're we're just being torn apart and the things that we once knew to be true in america we, we wonder if they're ever going to be true again and the hope you know the, the 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 message that is just seems to be just exploding and across our nation is that the hope for this of our country is now we have to abandon law and embrace lawlessness and that's not the hope. The healing for our land, the healing for our nation is that we must return to the Lord. That's the healing. And it begins with the church. You say, what does what healing look like? The passage that our brother Chris read this morning describes what healing from God looks like. Look at, this, look at, consider those words in Hosea, Hosea chapter 14. God says, When you return to me and you bring with you words and say, Um, no longer are we going to look to Assyria for help. And we're not going to call the things that we've made with our hands God. We're not going to call Wall Street our God. We're not going to call science our God. We're not going to hold up our politicians as God. We're not going to hold up our own lives as God. No, we're going to humble ourselves. We're going to bend the knee before God. What happens? God says in verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. I will be like the dew to the people of God. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Who wants to be like fine wine? Return to the Lord. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress, and from me comes your fruit. You think about that description. The morning dew, a blossoming lily, deepening roots, spreading shoots, beauty and fragrance, and uh, the sweetness of wine, like the sweetness of, of wine. And God says, from me, from me alone, comes your fruit. where does it begin this healing for the land begins with the conditions of revival being met in the people of God revival the hope for our country the hope for this world is dependent upon how you and I respond to this call from God How you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, respond to God. Now think about this. How I will heal their land. We think about this nationally. We think about this as our country. But what about if we applied it to our church? I will heal your church. Or what if we narrowed that even further? I will heal your homes. How many of us need the healing of God in our homes? Or I will... Heal your life. How many of us need to be revived? How many of us here would say this morning, say, Pastor Kevin, you know, uh, <clears throat> I don't feel like there's a freshness of, on my life. I, I don't feel like I'm blossoming. I, I don't feel like my roots are going deep or my shoots are spreading out. I don't feel like there's beauty and fragrance just coming from my life. I, I feel dry and barren. and, 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 and there's, there's nothing, there's no life there. My people who are called by my name will bend their knee and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will heal their land and their church and their homes and their life.